We have you covered on what happened before Big Ben's throw. We have you covered on what happened before Santonio Holmes' catch. Now it's actually time to hear the moments that turned Pittsburgh into Sixburg. We proved the doubters wrong. We overcame a daunting schedule, and we showed out as one of the most dominating defenses of all time. This is the season, 2008 Steelers Super Bowl edition. Welcome Steelers Nation, I am Bryant McFadden, your host and cornerback on the 2008 Pittsburgh Steelers. On this podcast, I have revisited our Super Bowl run from a decade ago with former teammates, coaches, delivering you behind the scenes insights and memories on the biggest plays and personalities from that memorable season. This is the final installment as we finally arrive at Super Bowl 43. Since there is so much to talk about, we'll break down our Super Bowl episodes into two parts. This is part one, where we will cover the lead up to the game, the first half. Next week, the finale, as we discuss the second half and post game. These episodes will sound a little bit different. They won't feature a singular guest, but rather a collection of Steeler players, coaches, Cardinals, and media members. We'll cover everything from February 1st, 2009 in Tampa, Florida, the night we hoisted the sticky Lombardi. The Super Bowl itself is over in a span of three to four hours. The build-up, it lasts weeks. We had eliminated the Chargers and disposed of the Ravens for the third time that season to reach the big game. Our opponent had a tougher path. The Arizona Cardinals finished the regular season 9-7. Winners of the NFC West, they defeated the 11-5 Falcons in the wild card round. Then they beat the 12-4 Panthers on the road in the divisional round. And to earn the right to face us, they topped the experienced Eagles for their first Super Bowl berth in franchise history. CBS Sports NFL writer Pete Prisco has been covering the NFL for over three decades, including Super Bowl 43, and recalls the prevailing storyline centering around the near David versus Goliath matchup. You had America's team against this little team from Arizona that nobody knew much about. I mean, that that's kind of what the storyline was that week because nobody knew who the Cardinals were. Nobody knew much about them as a team, and they were they were an average team during the regular season. You know, they they probably didn't play to to the level of expectations during the season. So, um, I don't think most people knew who they were. The Cardinals, despite being six and a half point underdogs, were confident. Entrell Rowe was in his fourth season as a member of the Arizona secondary and says he embraced the underdog mentality after their run through the NFC. You know, we started clicking on, on all cylinders and everyone was in sync and it just seemed like at that point in time we were so hot that we couldn't be beaten. The first time for them, but the second time for a lot of us on that Steelers team after winning Super Bowl 40 just three years prior. 
Heath. Heath Miller and I were rookies together in 2005 when we captured Pittsburgh's fifth Super Bowl. Heath, as the fans called him, Super Bowl experience was definitely different the second time around. Uh, I think I was um, a lot more prepared of, I, I think, what to expect going into that two-week layoff from the, uh, the AFC Championship game into the Super Bowl. Um, and I think really the second time around, for myself, I was able to just enjoy the whole process more because I knew what to expect. I knew, uh, you know, I wasn't as uptight. Obviously, there's nerves when you're playing on the biggest stage, but um, you know, I, I, I took, I didn't take it for granted, and I just, uh, I, I just remember I had a great time down in Tampa. And obviously, it was a great time because we won at the end of the week. Our star tight end had a great time in Tampa, but maybe not as much as one of our star linebackers, Lamar Woodley. Yeah, so my whole preparation, man, you, we talked about this, man. You know this. My preparation was I went out on Friday night and had a hell of a night. <laughs> <laughs> I got good sleep on Saturday and Saturday and Sunday, and I was fully charged hey. that night for the game. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm going to tell you like this. Listen to this. Every walkthrough, like on Saturdays during the postseason, Wood would come in the facility lit. I mean, lit. And I told him, I said, I don't know what you. It was doing. a hangover, B Mac. Don't a, stay lit like yeah, okay, I was drinking. Okay. Like it was, a, I was drinking exactly. It was, it, it was a good hangover. It was a good hangover. But I told Wood, I said, Wood, I don't know what it is that you're doing, but you better keep doing it. Do do it till the end. <laughs> and I'm gonna tell you, he was a hellraiser. So Lamar got good sleep on Saturday night. The same can't be said for the rest of our defense. James Ferrier and I give our never heard before recollections of the night before Super Bowl 43. Buckle your seatbelt. Me, myself, and I? Uh, well, technically oh, it was. Oh, what did I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, technically we do were I, all do involved. I do I tell, yeah, do I tell on everybody or does uh, I, you tell, I listen, say? pot dog, this is why. Yeah people listen to us this is why people listen to the season okay. to get inside stories something that never really been told to the public so spill the beans yeah this is one that's never been told to the public i've never heard it on any social media so i'm 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 pretty sure everybody's been pretty uh tight-lipped about this but uh we had a theory going back to our first super bowl that uh you know playing cards the night before the game was, you know, what we needed to do to get our last little bond ship or whatever you want to call it, our last little bit of time together. And, uh, you know, it was my day. We had to play cards all night long. And that's what we proceeded to do the night and before what was, the Super Bowl. What was the name of the card game? Blu-ray. If any of the fans out there know what Blu-ray is, uh, it's a great game. It's a card game. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of action, and uh, it gets us going, and it was definitely what we needed that night before. And that was a ritual for us. Anytime we had a home game, anytime we had a road game, anytime throughout the week of preparation, I mean, it was sometimes we would stay at the facility 8 and 9 o'clock at night after practice playing Boo Ray. And that was something that, like Pot said, it just brought us together. It brought us together, and we just enjoyed each other. But Potsy. The biggest game of our lives. You said we played all night. What time? Yeah. Because if I'm not mistaken, I think we were in your room. And it was probably around yeah. maybe 10 to 15 guys in Potsy room. And at least six guys were playing because you can't play with more than six. We never played with more than six players. And everybody else was just watching. 
But what time did you get a chance to close your eyes? Do you remember our time frame? Because I know I, I didn't get into my room until extremely late, and I was so mad because I felt like I'm not going oh, yeah. to be prepared. Uh, we probably finished the game probably around four or five ish in the morning, and uh, that was perfect time. It was it was good enough time where we could all still get our rest, and we wouldn't even have to wake up early and think about you know the the whole day. It was just you had to wake up because you had you were tired, so you had to get enough sleep. You had enough time to get enough sleep, but you couldn't think about anything else. You had to get up and go, and that's what we did. And I remember Potsy. Of course, Potsy was our leader, not just on the defense. You know, offensively, he was one of the quality leaders we had. And we were just talking about amongst ourselves, like, man, look at what time it is. Why are we still up playing cards? And Potsy said, man, don't worry about that. You guys, we will have a great performance because we're not prepared. And when you're not prepared, you know, your antennas, they're up. The sense of urgency is up, and that's something that you told us at that time. It didn't make any sense because, because we were trying to figure out yeah. why we were up that late, the biggest, right before the biggest game of the season. Because it would have definitely came out if we would have lost that game. That oh, they were playing cards the night before. That's why they lost. They were all tired. And if you know, if that would have came out. Oh my god. It would really been some oh uh, yeah. So oh. yeah, when I when I said that, that's what I meant. I was like, we're not gonna let that be the excuse. So I know everybody's antenna is <laughs> gonna be up this yeah. Yeah. And, and think about this, uh listeners, you remember when the Giants a few years back when the Giants played Green Bay in the playoffs and leading up to that ball game, uh Odell and some of his teammates, they took a trip to Miami, they were on a boat and they were seen on the boat and everybody talked about if they lose, they will get criticized so much for going to Miami to party right before the playoffs. And like Potsy just said, if we would have lost and that story would have gotten out, man, Steeler Nation probably would oh, never forgive man. us, Potsy. Oh, they would have never forgiven us. Would have went down to history as like the worst team ever. Like they blew it. They had a great defense all the way to the end and couldn't get it done. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> over a car game. Yeah, but over a car game. But, you know, I had a good feeling about that game. And uh, I have a good feeling about that car game and us just doing <laughs> what we did. Yeah, and it worked out. Let's check in on what the offense did the night before. Go back to my room, call my family. I, I remember I got a pretty good night's sleep, but I think I woke up probably like 5, 6 o'clock in the morning just because. How about the Cardinals? I think I went out to eat early with my family. And came back to the room about 7.30, 8 o'clock, and I just went to my playbook, made sure I went over all my adjustments, made sure everything was right. I was on the same page. Um, and I just literally just probably thought myself to sleep. Super Bowl Sunday had arrived. For some of us, earlier than others. But we all knew the task at hand. Even for our elite defense, we knew game planning and slowing down the high-powered Cardinals offense would be tough. I know Dick LeBeau, his, our main emphasis is always uh, stop the run and stop the running game and make a team one-dimensional. But, you know, I definitely feel like that Kurt Warner was, you know, the way he was throwing the ball around, it was definitely going to be up to our, our up-front guys and our front seven to, you know, relinquish hell and get as much pressure as we could on this man because if we didn't, it was going to be a long day. You know what, uh, 
James, what a lot of people might not remember about that offense, that offense had three 1,000-yard receivers. That offense also has multiple Hall of Famers, in my opinion. We know Kurt Warner. He's already in the Hall. Uh, Larry Fitzgerald, he will be in the Hall. Anquan Bolden, in my opinion, I think he will be in the Hall. Adrian James will be in the Hall. So right there, we're talking about what – I mean, well, I named four guys, right? Fitzgerald, Anquan, yeah. Kurt, who's already in, and Edger and James. That office had four Hall of Famers that <laughs> that was causing Man. hell. <laughs> no doubt about it. And you know, they had our they had our old coaches over there, Coach Wisden Hunt. You know, he yep. was a great offensive man at the time. So you know, he had those boys clicking. As James Ferrier mentioned. Ken Wisenhunt was the Cardinals head coach in 2008, but from 2001 to 2006, he was the Steelers tight end coach at first, and then he became the offensive coordinator. He made it known that Arizona had to play with great discipline and a near-perfect game to knock us off. We had a defensive game plan um, that, for one, we had to make sure that we, we took care of the run game. Obviously, having the speedy Willie Parker in the backfield, that was gonna be that was going to be tough. Um, our, our next priority was to make sure that we attacked Ben Roethlisberger because he was a guy, a big guy who was extremely strong and it didn't matter if you grabbed him by the legs or shoulder pads, the waist, it didn't matter. He was still going to be a guy that was going to get the ball off. And we knew that much about him. Um, uh, second of all, you know, Heinz Ward and Santonio Holmes, you had Nate Washington, I believe, at receiver who's a speedy mm-hmm. guy. And, uh, you know, we just had to make sure that we contained those guys. You had Heath Miller at tight end. I mean, now that I think about it, you had so many multiple weapons at all positions, you know, that it, it was it was almost a, a made-up team. You know, it was almost a team that you create on match. Our offensive coordinator at that time around was Bruce Arians. Bruce felt like he had a great focus in the lead up to the game. But he did have one major concern. Well, the big question mark was whether or not Hines was going to be able to play. And uh, he had a knee procedure. Um, he could practice, but he didn't need to practice. just needed to play. And, uh, you know, we were getting some other guys ready, and we were going to have to make a roster move night before the game if he couldn't play. Hines is a warrior, so no surprise he ended up playing despite being hobbled. We go through warm-ups. We stand through Jennifer Hudson's national anthem. We lose the coin toss, but the Cardinals defer. We get to receive first. Arizona and their red jerseys, us and our whites. At 631 in front of more than 70,000 people in Raymond James Stadium and nearly a 100 million people watching on NBC and millions more worldwide, Super Bowl 43 kicks off. It was a special moment for everyone involved, especially Ryan Clark, who was playing in his first Super Bowl. It, it meant that you were that you were worthy, honestly, Mac. Um, you know, when, when you get cut and you have a coach tell you he doesn't think you can be a safety in this league when you when you're let go by a team and you know, and that team signs somebody else just because they think they're more talented. Uh, then when you get to your new team. And you got to battle for a position. You win the position, and they tell you, "Yeah, but eventually the rookie's going to play because we feel like he's more talented." When the next year comes and you get a new coach, and they tell you you're going to battle with that same guy, and you outplay him and you beat him out for the position, but they say, "You know what? 
we're still an alternator. And then in the year, the same year, you almost lose your life, you lose two organs. You know, your boys come to see you. Don't tell you you look like death. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, and then the, the, the next year, you know, you walk into the office and they say, we didn't know how important you were until you were gone. You know, and then when you play every game in that year, like it's your last game because you think it could be because you've gone through that, you know, you just wonder, okay, what am I worthy? You know, do I get to do this? Do I deserve to do this? And to be a starter in a Super Bowl with the greatest organization in football, it just made me feel like, you know what, man, you are worthy. You know what, you do deserve it. You've put in the work, and, and here is your reward. So we get the ball first, and we're moving. Remember, a moment ago, when Bruce Aarons discussed Heinz Ward potentially not being able to play, well, the second play of the ball game, guess what? He hauls in a 38-yard reception to get us into Cardinals territory. Three plays later, Big Ben found Heath Miller for 21 yards, just inches shy of a touchdown. On that pass, I remember I wanted to fight for more yards, but I also knew the defensive back, I can't remember who it was, he had a pretty good grip on the ball too. So um, once I felt that, I just wanted to secure the ball and make sure I didn't lose possession of it. And, um, you know, I did, came up a little short. On third and one, it looked as though Big Ben notched the first touchdown of the game. His one-yard run was ruled a score, but was eventually overturned after going to replay. So we settled for a Jeffrey field goal, but also the lead. The rest of the quarter was scoreless, but ended with us threatening in the Cardinals' territory. With 14:09 remaining in the first half, on third and one from the one, Gary Russell punched it in to give us the 10-0 advantage. Typically, there was a lot of confidence in our defense with a lead like that. We were moving the ball fluidly at the beginning of the game. We knew they were a good defense, um, and we knew on the flip side their offense was really hot. And uh, Kurt Warner and those guys were were kind of tearing up the playoffs. But um, you know, we had faith in you guys, and um, so once we had a it, throughout the season, if we had a two score lead, it felt like we were up by 20, 20 30 points. Um, so once we went up ten zero, we uh, we knew he had to keep pushing, keep trying to score points, but um, uh, we, we also felt good about the lead. The Cardinals needed a score, and their Hall of Famer, Kurt Warner, delivered. On the next series, Warner went 7 for 8 for 82 yards, highlighted by a 45-yard completion to Anquan Bolden, down to the 1, and a 1-yard touchdown throw to Ben Patrick. And just like that, it's 10-7. We punt, and then they punt after we got a ton of pressure, including a sack by Lamar Woodley. Man, it's, it's getting pressure because the thing is, sometimes a, a lot of people would, would say that my the reason I was getting a lot of sacks is because I had uh, I had James Harrison on the other side, uh, but he also had Lamar Woodley on the other side, and we had a, a great group of guys around us where uh, teams had to pick their poison on who was going to block. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, man, my, my job was just get to the quarterback. I didn't care if I got a sack or I got pressure. My thing is to make sure that I don't leave y'all out there hanging on the island trying to cover receivers. To win a Super Bowl, you have to limit mistakes. Just before the two-minute warning, we made one, a Roethlisberger throw that was tipped at the line and picked off by Carlos Dansby. So Arizona gets it in great field position right before the half with a chance to go ahead. I think you know what happens next. 
to me, is the greatest football play I've ever seen. Offense, defense, special teams, whatever you want. That's our legendary defensive coordinator, Dick LeBeau. And, of course, he's referencing James Harrison's 100-yard interception return for a touchdown to close the first half. But James didn't even listen to Dick on that play call. <laughs> you know what I always tell when people ask about that? I say, well, I always gave, taught my players to be innovative. <laughs> <laughs> James said that when I asked him about that, that James said that uh, he knew there weren't any timeouts left. And he knew uh, that they couldn't run the ball because if they ran it and didn't make it, they wouldn't be able to kick uh, their field goal. And so he said, I engaged my guy and then dropped back and looked for the path that I knew was coming somewhere. And their quarterback, who was a great player, he threw it and James picked it off. One, no, I didn't think he would score. Two, he was wrong. He shouldn't have did that. Three, I'm so happy he did. And I remember countless times the coordinator Doctor with a coordinator now, Keith Butler, who's our linebacker coach, told him he can't do that. And thank God he never listened to, to uh, Keith Butler. But, okay. Because he dropped and, and got the interception. He was not supposed to be in that throwing window in that lane. He was supposed to go hug rush the running back. Explain and hug rush because, of course, you know, a lot of listeners don't know what hug absolutely. means. It's really a man-to-man defense. He was responsible for the running back. So as soon as the ball snapped, he had to go in the backfield right now. When I say hug rush, uh, you can rush the quarterback, but the running back was to go out for a pass. You got to go with him. Yep. So that particular set would have cleared that view for uh, Kurt Warner. But James Harrison, you know, he just dropped off. Instead of hugging, he just stayed on top of him. And he popped off right into that throwing window. Wow, I mean. That's that's probably the moment, like, you look back on history and, you know, that's like where were you moment. And everybody has their story of what they were doing on that particular play and what they were looking at. It's indeed a play that will forever be remembered. So let's hear memories of what Dick LeBeau called the greatest play in football history. But the, the greatness of that play is not the pick but the run. He yeah. ran. He must have ran 150 yards with that play. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's another play that I I used to the teaching aid uh, every every um, everywhere I've been since then, which is not much, but uh, I would show you guys a lot where uh, people came uh, from clear off the other side of the field and got key blocked all the way down, and Deshay got the key block right there that got him started, and it was just a a great team effort, and uh, you you might agree with this, you might not, but I think you it's hard to not agree with. James Harrison was probably the best conditioned athlete on the football team, and yeah. he he just never he, he was unbelievable. There's not any other uh, 265 pound guys that could run 125 yards like that, and it was about a hundred degree temperature. Mm-hmm. It was the last play of the half. If you remember, James just fell into the corner of the end zone and laid there. You know, just to to to, to jog some people's memories or to just give them a memory, Coach LeBeau never fussed at us hardly. Like, he never screamed at us. He never got mad. We go to practice on Wednesday. We're getting turnovers. We're not returning them. We're not doing these things. He puts on a tape on Thursday of us not transitioning defense to offense on interceptions, picks, turnovers right and he puts an emphasis on it i don't know if you remember this man 
it puts an emphasis on us doing those things. Mm-hmm. So the next practice, every time we got a pick, every time we got a turnover, everybody transitioned to offense. And then we watched it happen in real time, which is why he should have been in the Hall of Fame. But I think it's another reason why he got in was because of plays like that. People started to remember, oh, yeah, this guy also had a ton of picks. Um, but Coach LeBeau made sure we were transitioning in practice. And if you watch that interception, James is supposed to blitz, doesn't think he can get there, falls right into the passing lane, and immediately everybody starts to get blocks. Immediately everybody's transitioning offense. And it's a caravan to the end zone. And obviously it took Debo's ability to, 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 to have the conditioning, to have the cardio, to break the tackles, to want to finish. But it also took 10 other guys blocking and leading him to that touchdown. And it is, to me at least, the best total defensive play in Super Bowl history. And people can argue it. They say what they want. There's never been that many people involved in making one thing happen. Obviously, he's the guy who made the pick, who gets the touchdowns, why he was defensive player of the year. But it was the caravan of white jerseys and black helmets and gold pants that got him there that really changed that game. And we all just started running. And I can just remember getting a tug on my uh on my neck brace and it was Anquan Bolden behind me and he was trying to get around me and I was just kind of just in his way so he just pulled me down from the back and uh I'm still mad about it to this day the the referee he saw he saw him do it I thought he could should have called a penalty but you know that's another story so I fall down Anquan he stumbles over me and uh I get back up and I see James running. I see everybody, you know, throwing amazing blocks. I see, like, I'm looking at the clock and I'm thinking to myself, like, he's not going to make it, man. He better get out of bounds so we can at least kick a field goal. He had already ran far enough where we were in field goal range, you know, with a couple seconds left. And then I see him still run. I'm like, man, somebody's going to get him. Oh, we're going to blow this. We could have got a, at least a field goal. And then he gets closer. Then he keeps getting closer. I'm like, oh, man, I think he's going to make it. Oh, I think he's going to make it. And when he made it, it was like, oh, man, he made it. The clock was on zero. He was, I'm sure he was just extremely exhausted. But that feeling was an unbelievable feeling. And uh, we were very excited. One part of that story get left out and, you know, Fitzgerald was going to catch him. Yep. But Antoine Rumble was in the white. And May Fitzgerald had to deviate and made just a little longer path to get there. And, you know, he hit Harrison probably at the two-yard line, but his momentum, you know, carried him in the end zone. And Trail Road shares his side of what happened on that fateful play. So when I saw James Harrison intercept that ball, it's like it felt like literally like my life just crumbled. I didn't know what to think. It was just – it almost – you know, at that point, and I, and I honestly remember, um, you know, I, I like to consider myself a very clean player. You know, I, I, I give credit where credit is due, may the best man win. And the reason why I was honestly so close to the sideline as I was when that took place, for one, I was watching what was taking place, and I'm like, there's no way this guy's going to score. Like, somebody has to get him. There's no way. And second, my second thought was, Man, I'm gonna trip this. I'm gonna. I'm about to trip his ass. <laughs> that, that's literally what. I, that's literally what I was thinking. I'm like, 
oh my God, like in, in my right mind, I would never ever think that way. But I'm just sitting there thinking, I'm like, why am I inching? Why am I inching? Why am I inching? And that's the that's the first thing that's going through my mind. Like, just trip him, just trip him. Like he can't score, just trip him, just trip him. But the competitive nature in me and the, the, the kind of person that I am, I would have never allowed myself to actually do it. But I will admit it most definitely was a thought. And it was a thought for several seconds that this dude was running down the sideline. And I'm just seeing your team blocking to perfection. I'm like, oh, my God, this dude's going to score. It's a moment that still haunts Roll to this day. I just wish that I was in my right mind enough to be aware that Larry Fitzgerald was all the way off in the sideline and he was trying to make an attempt to run Harrison down. Oh, yeah, I remember that. He yeah, almost ran into you. Run, no, he did run into me. He he ran into me, so it completely stopped his momentum. Yes. And as we all know, Larry Fitzgerald still caught James Harrison at the one-yard line. At the end. But, you know, obviously at the end, correct. But his momentum was good enough, was obviously was, was going enough where Larry Fitzgerald couldn't stop him before the end zone. So has Larry not been – had I not been in Larry's way, or I mean, I was, I'm not gonna necessarily say I was in his way because I was on the sideline. I was just a little bit further up on the sideline, but Larry was literally running past the white, and um, he ran into me. And obviously, the rest is history. You know, he wasn't able to catch James in time. And when I look back, I'm like, man, you know, if he just hadn't run into me, he would have caught him. But you know, I mean, it, it happens. You know, that's the game of football, and. Um, yeah, you know, everything was everything that took place was meant to be, you know. Wow, I I remember exactly what you're talking about. It was almost like you said Larry had to try to avoid you. It slowed down his momentum, and that was actually the extra yard that Correct. James Harrison needed because like I, I Larry's the type of guy, you know, and I know personally, of course, you know, Antrell playing the majority of your career with Larry. I mean, he's a competitor and he fights to the end. And we saw that on that slant route we talked about earlier. No doubt in my mind, Larry was going to leave his whole, leave it all on the football field to try to go make that tackle to save a touchdown. He would have made that tackle. There's no doubt about it. He would have made that tackle. 200%. That tackle would have been made. So instead of potentially being down 14-10 at the half, we head into the break up 17-7 with all the momentum, but still, 30 minutes of football left to play. We still had a whole another half to play. And you know, uh, Brian, just like I know, a uh, half of football is a lifetime. And we still have a whole other half to cover. On the next and final episode of the season, 2008 Steelers, we'll discuss halftime adjustments, the Cardinals' comeback, and another one of the greatest plays in Super Bowl history. Download and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. You can also check us out on Stitcher, anywhere else podcasts are found. Until next time, in the words of Steeler legend Dick LeBeau, adios.